I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. My name is Benjamin Jacobs, and I normally host a show called Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. But fear not! Your podcast player is not lying. This is actually the history of England. David has very kindly asked me to provide an episode for his feed to give you all some context on how things in England fit in with some sort of wider social forces in Europe. To do this, I'm going to talk about a subject near and dear to both myself and David, the theory of the military revolution in the early modern period. Now, those of you who are not familiar with these concepts may be confused, as the last half of that sentence kind of fell apart into a weird jumble of hilariously contradictory or redundant academic technobabble. Military revolution is itself seemingly contradictory because most of us tend to think of revolutions as violent events. And then there's early modern, which ranks alongside jumbo shrimp in terms of internally contradictory statements. But please, permit me to break it down a little bit. Let's start with early modern. This phrase only makes sense if you are intimately familiar with the particulars of periodization preferred by prolific and pompous historians, which is to say historians since the Renaissance have divided history up into ancient, medieval, and modern history. Then within these wider periods, there are subperiods. For example, the ancient era is divided into things like the Bronze Age or the Iron Age or the Classical Period. Leaving aside the fact that almost all these periodizations are problematic in some way and ignore colonial peoples or people outside of very specific areas of Europe, these are standard periodizations that are just used as shorthand so that people who know what they mean know what each other are talking about. And now you're part of that club. Congratulations. Within that context, the early modern period is just the first part of the modern period. Uh, as for the actual times of this period, this is subject to a lot of debate, because historians love nothing so much as arguing about the timestamps of their favorite made-up periods. But for my purposes today, let's just say it starts around 1500 and ends at the year 1700. The military revolution, by contrast, is kind of like the industrial revolution, in the sense that it was a set of social processes that changed society rather than a political event that reorganized it. In this case, the basic idea is that, as armies got more expensive in the late Middle Ages and early modern period, the old monarchical regimes of Europe were forced to grow their bureaucratic apparatuses to support the armies involved, a process that ultimately led to the growth of the modern state, democracy, and peace and justice for all. Your mileage may vary. The phrase military revolution was coined by historian Michael Roberts in the 1950s and has been extensively debated and argued about ever since. I'm fairly sure David has mentioned it before, if for no other reason than that one of his professors from university was a certain Dr. Jeffrey Parker, a key person in the debate surrounding the concept of the military revolution, and the author of two of my sources on the subject, namely The Army of Flanders and the Spanish Road. He also edited the Cambridge History of Warfare and contributed articles to the military revolution debate, which was edited by Clifford Rogers. While we are on the subject, my other major sources for today's episode are the Cambridge History of the Early Modern Period and John Keegan's A History of Warfare. Those are the major sources, but as I have an entire podcast on the Early Modern Period, I hope you don't mind if I don't list off every single book and article I have consulted. 
Anyway, David has mentioned the military revolution in broad strokes, but I hope you will all indulge me today as I go into a bit more detail in my own particular idiom. I will give you some European context and expound a bit on the importance of the concept, why it's useful, and also why it's deeply, deeply flawed. Many of you out there will be happy that I've said this, uh, as this means I'm about to talk a lot about military history stuff in some detail. Others of you out there are sad, because I'm about to talk a lot about military history stuff in some detail. Well, fear not, ladder group, I get you. And this isn't going to be all swords and maces. There's also economics and human suffering and a bunch of weird intellectuals who reshaped a country's military as a kind of weird Ciceronian fanfiction. Anyway, there's a lot of fun stuff to cover, so let's get started. Let's begin with the basics. Did war get more expensive in this period, and why? In short, and in lieu of presenting you with lots of tables and Excel spreadsheets, yes, it did get more expensive. If you remember the last few, well, years of the history of England, a lot of time has been spent by the kings dealing initially with their nobles and then with parliaments in trying to raise money for the king's military projects. Fresh on your minds will undoubtedly be Henry VIII, but you can think back to the various domestic wranglings during the Hundred Years' War, and even back to mean old Prince John. This was a long process, but it's clear that war was increasingly pushing the bounds of what the king could do on their own. So what changed? In the background, the growth of the European economy and a slight trend towards inflation is probably worth noting, but more importantly is the turn away from feudal levies and towards mercenaries of various kinds. So, as David has said in the past, the military and society of the Middle Ages was based on feudalism, in which nobles would be given land from the king in return for military service. This is a broad strokes discussion of a social system that covered an entire continent, but let's move on. This was an easy way to help control land and sustain military capacity in the absence of tax revenues or a professional bureaucracy. I'll explain why that was necessary a bit later. But to be fair, feudal states were capable of really amazing things, notably very rapid growth, as the promise of plunder and land would attract good professional soldiers to enthusiastically participate in campaigns. The downside is that expansion can't go on forever, and such soldiers are much less enthusiastic on the defense, since they are less likely to get rewards, and over time these military aristocracies uh, lose their professionalism and become less interested in subordinating their own personal gain to what's best for the kingdom as a whole, as they become a professional class of landowners rather than a professional class of soldiers. Feudal militaries also have downsides for society as a whole. In modern times, we assume that only the state has the right to use violence, except in extremely exceptional circumstances, which is to say that the police are there to investigate crimes, punish criminals, and protect the public, while the army is there to defend the state from outside actors. There is some variation in this, as in the United States, local governments have control over police forces and the National Guard in certain circumstances, but it's not like Elon Musk has the right to build a bunch of tanks and invade Canada to secure cheap access to rare earth minerals, as much as he might wish otherwise. And your landlord definitely does not have the right to try and execute criminals for criminal behavior, no matter how much he thinks the city shouldn't be involved in his affairs and his building. In the Middle Ages, by contrast, private landowners controlled justice as part of their ownership of property, and lords ruling along the border were allowed to maintain large military forces and often had their own foreign policy. Now, they held their land as a gift from the king, so they were expected to follow the king's policies, but the king was in many ways just the biggest landowner of all. The lords, together, often had enough military force to counterbalance the kings of Europe, and the kings ruled by ensuring that some lords were always on their side. This might seem like a good way to contain the evil power of the central government, if that's your way of looking at the world, except that the lords engaged in constant warfare amongst themselves. They were essentially mini-states on their own, structured into an alliance system with the monarchy. As a result of this, the monarchs struggled to control these feuds, which meant that violence was a regular part of pretty much everyone's daily life, in some way, shape, or form. The military systems of feudal societies ended up being structured around the needs of this feuding rather than national goals, with each lord erecting fortifications, or castles if you prefer, to defend their own lands from all comers, including the king, and local military forces being focused on small groups of heavily armed cavalry capable of trolling large amounts of countryside and responding quickly to threats to the local lord's power. 
As a result, the armored knights of Europe were not developed because they were the best way to win set-piece battles, though they could do that, and they were useful in a fight. They were just instead developed as part of the political economy of the time primarily, not primarily as a response to battlefield conditions. Places that maintained strong infantry military traditions, like the areas we would now call Switzerland, Frisia, Scotland, Wales, and Italy, were places where this feudal social structure had failed to take root, or had died out, for a variety of local reasons. Not all medieval monarchies were created equal, however. The kings of England had always had a very centralized state, relatively speaking, and after the Norman Conquest, the system became very streamlined indeed. In practice, what this meant is that they limited the number of landowners that they had to deal with. They effectively rationalized and streamlined the feudal hierarchy, with a small number of very big landowners whose loyalty they had to retain, rather than messing around with a huge number of medium-sized ones. This worked very well when the King of England was strong and smart, less so at other times, but by contrast to situations in, say, the Holy Roman Empire, which we're going to touch on in a bit, where the emperor was trying to counterbalance the big lords against the little lords against the church, ultimately those societies just collapsed out of a, a lack of order. The Valois monarchs of France, faced with competition by their theoretical Angevin subordinates, among others, which is to say the kings of England, were similarly forced to streamline their administration. They did this in a different way. The French aristocracy and political order would never be as streamlined as England's. Instead, they built their forces gradually. They built a bureaucracy instead of a feudal hierarchy, and gradually brought the levers of local control more and more into their own hands by appointing people personally loyal to the king as family lines died out and things along those lines. The project lasted centuries and started in the years immediately following Charlemagne when the first Valois kings of France basically just owned the area around Paris and a title. Uh, and then by the time the Middle Ages ended, they were one of the most powerful states in Europe. This project lasted centuries, as I said, and it had ups and downs. But in some ways, they were more steady in their progress than the kings of England, who made one giant leap up in the beginning and then were dealing with the consequences for centuries afterwards. The big contrast, as I said earlier, was the empire of Germany and Italy, which would go through spasms of centralization and decentralization, ultimately culminating with the reign of Frederick Barbarossa, whose strong drive to centralize the empire resulted in a reasonable amount of centralization in Germany and the total collapse of the empire in Italy. By the time of his death in 1190, Italy was on a path where centralization would occur under the auspices of the merchant elites of the city-states, rather than a regional monarch. Ultimately, the same would happen in Germany under the elector princes rather than the emperor, but this process would not become noticeable until basically the early modern period. Now, in these various political systems, mercenaries had, in various ways, always been part of the picture. Arguably, the knights who ended up as the Norman ruling class of England or the Christian lords of Spain started out as mercenaries. They just ended up trading cash payments for land payments. What changed over time was the increasing unwillingness of their descendants to show up for wars, and conversely, the increasingly pressing need for professional military engineers in sieges, and the eventual land poverty of the kings. At a certain point, they couldn't give away any more land without undermining their own power. This was combined on the continent with the rise of crossbow guilds, who initially worked simply as guards and escorts for merchant caravans, before their value in siege context was recognized by more conventional military leaders. In England, the marcher lords in Wales and Scotland found value in hiring local people to flesh out their military, with non-noble infantry soldiers armed with local weaponry. In Ireland, the hobbler cavalry were a similar force of local dudes on low-rent Irish horses who helped with patrolling and formed a light cavalry force. Places all across Europe had similar groups. Podcast footnote. This ultimately begs the question as to the difference between a mercenary and a soldier who gets paid in money. This is actually a fairly complex philosophical argument. I actually had to read, like, hundreds of pages about this in college when I was getting my international relations degree. But this is actually a fairly complex philosophical question when you get into international law. Most definitions rely on, like, the loyalties of soldiers, but then loyalty can change based on things like, you know, money. Today, most of us and many international law texts rely on wider concepts of the nation-state and say that people recruited from inside a territory of a state are normal soldiers, while people recruited from outside the territory of a state are mercenaries. 
But then you have things like the U.S. military, which has a lot of people who are not currently citizens. They were recruited within the United States, but they came from elsewhere. And they joined up with the promise of citizenship upon honorable discharge as a key part of their motivation. If a person is willing to risk death just to become a part of the body politic, surely that attests to their loyalty to the U.S. and avoids labeling such individuals as mercenaries. In a nation of immigrants like the U.S., where nationality is inherently based on loyalty to a set of ideals rather than genetics, such arguments carry a fair bit of weight, at least theoretically. But they might not in other societies where ethnicity is more central to identity, but that's a whole nother kettle of kippers. In the context of the Middle Ages, anyone who was paid cash for service could be called a mercenary, but even by the time of the Hundred Years' War, commentators do tend to draw a bit of a distinction between native troops, like the English longbowmen, who were recruited for money and paid by local leaders, as opposed to foreign troops recruited for money and paid by local leaders. Ultimately, the distinction may be rhetorical, based on the views of the commentator on the soldiers he's talking about. End podcast footnote. So we've talked a bit about the European political system and mercenaries. The final precondition for the military revolution was the rise of cities as nodes of economic and political power. This has been referenced already in terms of the changing economy and the power of Italian city-states, but let me just say this explicitly. The recovery of long-distance trade after the year 1000 or so went hand-in-hand with the growth of urban places as centers of trade, administration, distribution, etc., As a result, and despite terrible public health systems resulting in negative native population growth, city populations grew in absolute terms through the Middle Ages based on in-migration from the countryside, and by the 1300s, many were self-governing in one way or the other. As part of this process, cities necessarily developed the means to protect themselves from predatory lords and to maintain internal order. This generally took the form of militias, often armed in a fairly diverse way but based on local traditions and capabilities. The Italians tended towards crossbows, given the previously existent crossbow guilds there, while cities in the Rhine Valley tended more towards spear-based formations. These militias were often poorly led and equipped little more than a rabble, but their power on the battlefield when properly motivated was shown in the 1300s by a series of military conflicts across Europe. In the Battle of Courtrai in 1302, a group of Flemish weavers armed with basically clubs beat a French cavalry force to death in ditches. In 1315, at the Battle of Morgarten, a bunch of spear-wielding peasant Swiss drove a German cavalry army off of a cliff. And of course, there were some places where infantry had remained pivotal in warfare the entire time. And around this time, they also got to strut their stuff. Notably for this podcast, at the Battle of Cressy in 1346, a bunch of English peasants armed with simple bows, as opposed to crossbows, mowed down the French aristocracy. And of course, you can add in the Battle of Stirling Bridge if you're feeling particularly Celtic. None of these events was a huge shock to the system. Infantry had been an integral element of war all through the Middle Ages, as we can see in accounts of the First Crusade, which ended in 1099. Rather, these events made it clear that in any kind of major pitched battle, armies going forward would need to be combined arms affairs, in which the cavalry worked together with infantry forces. But the feudal levy systems, uh, which is to say just kind of a draft, were not able to provide that kind of complexity, as the French found to their pain during the Hundred Years' War. And so mercenaries of one form or another needed to be recruited and paid, and the costs of this just kept growing. Because even if infantry were cheaper per unit price than cavalry, you needed more of them to be effective. Which is to say, one spearman versus one knight is not going to do very well, because he's less mobile and less well-armored. So you really need, like, ten spearmen per cavalryman. And those guys are going to need to be fed and equipped somehow. And now, just for good measure, most campaigns in the heavily fortified land of Europe would require at least one or two sieges if a leader wanted to hold the territory that they were fighting for. You know, winning a pitched battle is nice and everything, but if you don't take the towns and the castles, it's not good for much. Siege engineers were highly educated professionals, and you definitely couldn't just pay them in food and loot. This starts to bring us to the point where Michael Roberts' theory starts to come into play. Because speaking of sieges, this is also the period when gunpowder weapons came into existence. At least as far as Europe is concerned. And while hand cannons were around, the biggest military impact of these weapons came towards the end of the Hundred Years' War, when the French military engineers landed upon the tactic of digging trenches up close to the walls of a castle, filling them with cannons, and blasting away at the base of the walls from point-blank range. 
This significantly reduced the amount of time it took to reduce a fortification, at least a traditional one, from months to weeks, allowing the French to rapidly drive the English out while avoiding pitched battles at the same time. They would just hop from siege to siege. A generation later, the French king Charles VIII would use this newfangled artillery train to blast through all of Italy as if no one was in it, leaving the Italians scrambling to develop new fortification technologies and hire more advanced infantry-based mercenary armies. And all of this was wildly expensive. The French paid for their artillery by being the largest feudal monarchy in Europe, with a bureaucracy that was able to draw small fees and taxes from all around their kingdom, despite the reality of feudal land ownership. The Italians paid for their armies by just directly taxing their booming economies, using an increasingly professionalized administrative apparatus. England, by contrast, was collapsing into the Wars of the Roses. In these wars, England ran headlong into a military dead end that kept England an unimportant and third-rate power until well into the early modern period. Essentially, England continued to rely on the combination of men-at-arms and longbows. Most importantly, all of these men could be recruited by the existing semi-feudal systems in place in England, and since both sides of the conflict had access to the same systems, since it was based on local land ownership and the two sides of the conflict were local landlords, there ended up being no alternative ways of doing things that was competing with the traditional ways for dominance. Which is to say, both sides fielded the same kind of army, and so they saw no reason to change. The result was odd for a military that had had such success a generation earlier in France using infantry armies. The development of plate armor, which the English had imported from Italy, combined with the fact that both sides of this conflict had archers of roughly equal strength, effectively neutralized the longbows as an important weapon in settling the Wars of the Roses. Instead, the conflicts fell back on elite feudal military formations of semi-professional nobles clad in plate armor. Sometimes they rode on horseback, but usually they just walked in order to spare the horses from the longbows. But beyond that, the nobles recruited in the armies did most of the fighting. Battles would open with longbows shooting at each other a couple times, and then the nobles would just walk across a field and hit each other with things. In any other place in Europe, the result would have been that some outside power would have intervened and smacked them both upside the head. But because the English Channel was a thing, and because the Italian wars kept France busy during this time, England never had to confront the artillery armies of France or the other developments happening on the continent, except at a distance and the military that had helped bring combined arms battles to Europe let the skill atrophy and just stared at its navel for a generation, essentially. Podcast footnote. There is a grisly denouement to this tale. I mentioned that the men involved here were wearing plate armor. That is basically what you think of when you think of knights in shining armor. Before this period, no one dressed like that. So all the knights that we were talking about before were basically dressed like dudes from the Bayou Tapestry, give or take a little bit. Now, after the Italian invention of plate armor, you actually had dudes in those crazy helmets with the pointy things and everyone's wearing metal all over themselves and all that stuff. Dressed like this, these men were not only basically invulnerable to arrow fire, yes, even from longbows, but they were also basically immune to swords and spears. And so these men started going into combat wielding warhammers and maces, as crushing damage was basically the only way to get anything done. Archaeological evidence shows the result. Mass graves near battle sites from the Wars of the Roses show casualties who did not die from simple stab wounds, but instead people who had suffered repeated, repeated blows to the face with blunt force trauma. Which is to say, the only way to kill someone, or even seriously wound an opponent in the Wars of the Roses, was to hit them with a blunt object until their armor collapsed, killing them. Which is not pleasant. End podcast footnote. So far, the story I have presented has focused on fairly impersonal political, economic, and military forces. But this is where the story gets wacky, because at this point, we are well into the Italian Renaissance, and as a result, our military freight train is about to collide at full speed with the fully loaded 18-wheeler of culture and art, all happening at the unsafe grade rail crossing of history. That metaphor really got away from me. What I'm trying to say is this. At the same time that we have highly developed urban polities in Italy confronting the military juggernaut of France under Charles VIII, we need to acknowledge that those Italian polities are stuffed full of weird intellectuals who have spent all their time reading Cicero and Virgil and then writing their own poems in the classical style while making sculptures and making paintings. 
Confronted by a situation where the old techniques and rules of the Middle Ages weren't working, these intellectuals became military theorists, and they were people who were extremely comfortable rejecting those old ideas and finding new ones in classical literature. These classical writings about military tactics and technologies were always focused on ancient Greece and Rome. This cultural phenomenon of the Italian Renaissance obsession with the classical past would combine with the experience of English mercenaries and others from Northern Europe, and along with the excess manpower of the new Swiss cantons and the constant opportunities for experimentation afforded by the wars within Italy to create a whole new style of military tactics in the early modern period. In Italy itself, the techniques of fortification, which would come to be called Trace Italian, were the most evident. In effect, they had to take their old city walls and adapt them to deal with these new French cannons. They did this by doing a bunch of things. Basically, walls had to get thicker, they had to get stocky, but they still had to be high enough to defeat infantry attacks. That's a whole other conversation just to describe how they worked. Suffice it to say that it worked, but it was really expensive. But the reality was that Italy was now a battleground for three foreign powers, namely the French, the Spanish, and the German Habsburgs, though the German Habsburgs would merge with the Spanish fairly quickly. Anyway, you have this face-off between the Habsburgs and the French, and it's happening in Italy. The French dominated early on, combining their advantages in artillery with a major reform of the way their cavalry was recruited, trained, and supplied logistically. I'll spare you a long quote in the interest of time, but the French gendarmes were professionally paid soldiers supplied with food and semi-standardized equipment from dedicated armories and depots, which was a huge advance in the logistics of warfare. Then there was the infantry, which they just hired those from Switzerland. And culturally speaking, the Spanish were more tied into the developments in Italy, as many regions of Italy voluntarily turned to them as a counterbalance to the French, or as a result of the Sicilian Vespers, which is a totally awesome story that I sadly must pass by for now. Anyway, the Spanish and Italian theorists, who were very closely culturally linked, confronted a French army whose Swiss infantry was pike-based. This got the old wheels turning in the uh, Renaissance Italian-era intellectuals of the time, and they conceived the idea that the Swiss, with their long spears, were analogous to the Macedonian phalanxes of the ancient world, who also carried long spears. To any Italian intellectual of the time, the answer was obvious. They just needed to crack open whatever volume of ancient Roman history they had at hand to be told that the solution to a Macedonian phalanx was a Roman legion armed with swords and javelins. Ergo, the way to beat the Swiss pikemen was to deploy small groups of men armed with swords and shields called bucklers and javelins. Easy as pie. Good day's work. And so we get the spectacle of a bunch of Italian armchair Renaissance intellectuals taking their cues for the reformation of the Spanish military from the thousand-year-old writings of a bunch of armchair Roman intellectuals. So how did that go? Despite that snarky lead-in, the sword and buckler men did have some initial successes. But that said, they were extremely vulnerable to cavalry attacks, which... Honestly, in retrospect, probably shouldn't have been a surprise. There's a reason the Romans themselves eventually abandoned the Gladius, the sword-armed legionary, for spear-armed troops later on into the Roman Empire. Spears just give an infantryman range that's necessary to deal with cavalrymen, and spear formations are much better at dealing with cavalry than interlocked shields. That said, it's an easy enough mistake to make if you're just focused on the classical era and how awesome classical era writers made the Roman legion sound. On the other hand, these Renaissance-era thinkers probably should have had cavalry more on their mind, given where all the French were putting all their efforts. Oops. Anyway, the Spanish brought pikemen back into their army with the idea that the pikemen would keep the cavalry off, and then the swordsmen would break into the Swiss pike formations with the feudal Spanish heavy cavalry exploiting any openings. But then this wasn't quite enough, so the sword and buckler men were supplemented by people wielding javelins, and one thing led to another, and ultimately what happened is that they sort of consolidated things a bit and brought in handgunners, which is to say people armed with early muskets or arquebusiers. 
So this weird infantry combat system with uh, sort of these bedrock formations of less mobile pikemen surrounded by groups of swordsmen and arquebusiers shooting at their opponents, lumbering around the battlefield. This was sort of the origin of the Spanish Tercio, although the way that's usually described tends to make it seem more organized than it actually was. In any case, at the Battle of Carignola in 1503, a Spanish force composed of this mix of infantrymen, heavy cavalry, and artillery managed to break a French force composed of their artillery, pikemen, and cavalry, thus proving once and for all that the Spanish system was superior, at least so long as the Swiss pikemen flung themselves across an open field into a prepared fortified position. The point of all this is that, under the influence of the Italian Renaissance and the development of gunpowder technology, the Spanish, French, and Italians gradually developed a set of new military tactics that would dominate the battlefield in one form or another until the 19th century, albeit with some tweaks around the edges. Infantry were initially armed with pikes and muskets, and they had to operate in conjunction. The development of the bayonet allowed the musketeer to be both a gunner and a pikeman at the same time, which simplified things a lot, but that wouldn't be for another hundred years after this point or so. In any case, the infantry would create these lines that were studded with cannons to provide fire support, and the cavalry would wait around in the wings while the artillery and infantry blasted each other apart, and then at any sign weakness or a weak point in the line, the cavalry would charge in, fling themselves into openings, then try and pry open the enemy line and cut down anyone who fled. This is basically the military system that we end up being familiar with in terms of the Napoleonic Wars or the American Revolution or that whole time period. There were still some evolutions to go, but this is the basis. This time period is where that all started to evolve. Getting back to the point of this whole celebration of misery, the key point is that this military system, especially the one developed by the Spanish with the pikemen and the javelin guys and the handgunners and the dudes armed with swords, it's insanely complicated and, more importantly, eye-wateringly expensive. To make their system work, the French had already developed a new tax and logistics system to translate their agricultural wealth into cash resources that could be put into the purchase of cannons, hiring those Swiss mercenaries, and feeding a force of professional cavalry soldiers. The Spanish system was even more resource-intensive, with those swordsmen and handgunners and artillerists and cavalrymen and pikemen all required in this weird dance across the battlefield. The cavalry was often somewhat still recruited using a feudal system, and many of the pikemen were mercenaries hired from Germany, but the swordsmen, artillerists, and uh, handgunners, they had to be hired locally from, you know, internally, paid, and most importantly, trained, equipped, and led. The Spanish developed a system of military bases where standardized equipment was manufactured, recruits were trained, and supply lines were coordinated to bring these goods out into the field. And to be clear, at one point, their supply line started in Cadiz and went across the Mediterranean to Genoa, and then north across the Alps through Germany to supply an attempt to conquer the Netherlands. So that's not exactly around the corner. To lead these armies, officers were vital, as they had to coordinate this insanely complex set of movements in which the different arms of these forces would weave around each other in the chaos of a battlefield. These officers tended to come from the nobility, but these individuals had to be trained up as well and learn to lead their troops. And so the Spanish started throwing out these armies full of swordsmen and pikemen and horsemen and cannons all dancing around each other like some kind of weird Russian ballet. And the rest of Europe just looked on incredulously and asked, how do you afford these things? In the case of the Spanish, the answer to this is fairly straightforward. Partway through the development of this system, they sort of plundered the mineral resources of a continent and a half, and that'll let you buy a lot of gumballs. But for everyone else who opposed the Spanish, who suddenly needed to buy a hugely complex army consisting of thousands of people provided with training and high-tech equipment, getting those kinds of resources was, you know, not exactly a direct option. They had to devise new ways to convert their country's native wealth into something that they could use as resources to create this military machine to fend off the Spanish. Some places, like the Netherlands and many parts of Italy, were able to use taxes to acquire these resources from increasing levels of trade. However, that wasn't always an option in many places in Europe, including, to greater and lesser extents, France and England. 
To explain the problem that these places were having with their lingering feudal systems, I'd like to provide two anecdotes. First, the story of Berengar I of Italy and the tolls of the Veronese Plain. And then the second story is the story of the country of Andorra. Let's start with the tolls. Berengar was nominally the king of northern Italy, though he had the remarkable distinction of spending decades of his life on military campaigns against rivals and invaders and somehow never once winning a battle. In my show, I dubbed him Berengar the Nudnik, and he is one of my very favorite historical failures. Anyway, in 906, Berengar asked a certain deacon named Audubert to fortify the lands of Verona against some invading Hungarians. In lieu of payment for this service, Berengar gave the deacon the right to collect all the tolls and the market fees in the area. While possibly an expedient that seemed necessary under the circumstances, the result was that the kings of Italy from then onward had no right to the income from those tolls and market fees, and if they wanted them back, they would have to deal with a heavily fortified countryside. While Berengar was particularly remarkable in his idiocy, kings and nobles all across Europe did similar things during the early Middle Ages. This is part of that whole process of feudalization. Now Andorra. In 1278, the Counts of Foix, in what we now call France, and the Bishops of Urgell, in what we now call Spain, had a dispute over who would rule a bunch of valleys deep in the middle of the Pyrenees Mountains. Deciding not to spill blood over a bunch of worthless sheep pasture, the two signed a real estate deal in which the people of the valleys would pay tribute to the count and the bishop on alternating years forever. Many deals like this were being signed in the Middle Ages, especially in southern France at that time, but due to a series of hilarious historical accidents, the counts of Foix ended up being kings of France, while the bishops of Urgell remained the bishops of Urgell in Spain. And again, rather than fight a war over this valley of Andorra, they basically just kind of let it become an independent country by accident over the years. This minor real estate deal went down in 1278 and remained the basis of this country's sovereignty until 1997, at which point it was supplemented with a constitution. But every year, from 1278 until 1997, the people of the valleys paid their tribute. How much? Well, it was probably a reasonable sum in the Middle Ages, given that they bothered to work it all out. But keep in mind, it didn't grow with inflation. None of these deals ever did, because in the Middle Ages, they didn't know that inflation was a thing, at least not in such a term. And so the final 1997 payment to the Bishop of Urgell consisted of 2.7 euros and sundry chickens, capons, hams, and cheeses. The final payment to the President of France the previous year was 36 euros. So there's two dimensions to the administrative issues plaguing these medieval monarchs. First of all, while taxes were being collected, they were not going to the king. The right to collect things as basic as bridge tolls had been delegated out to different people, and the resources generated never made it to the control of any one entity capable of making spending decisions. Compounding the problem, the revenue that was being generated was not being actively managed, because the terms of the payments were set by ancient documents that did not have provision for the adjustment of the amounts involved. When you take into account the fact that the nobles who held the right to collect these taxes had private armies, you can start to understand the scope of the problem. These societies just did not have any way to point their resources in one direction. And to be clear, if you don't have money, it's not just that you can't pay soldiers. If you don't have money, it becomes difficult to do things like keep track of who owes you money or manage your estates. Because people who can do that kind of thing need to be educated and expect to be paid, at least in some way, for their time. Early ad hoc solutions to this problem involved attempts to give people land in lieu of a salary, which just made the money situation worse. Or they used priests, but then as the Middle Ages wore on, members of the clergy often had their own goals, separate from those of the king. Using people who were willing to work without being compensated often meant that they didn't do a good job, or else that the money being gathered found its way into their pockets instead of the king's. So if you had money and could use it to pay bureaucrats, it was often easier to find more money and generate more revenues and then eventually pay your army. You could also do fun things like have a court system or administer justice properly, but we're talking about the military. Places that were able to overcome these problems in one degree or another, like France and England, had to do so gradually over the course of centuries and in the teeth of fierce domestic opposition from a bunch of well-armed and powerful nobles who could literally kill the king if they didn't like his policies. The French kings were able to do it by cleverly using the legal system and their army to gradually bring tax revenues back under the control of the king over centuries. 
These revenues were used to build up a bureaucracy, which allowed the king to more efficiently run the military and find more opportunities to pry more rights away from the nobles and find more revenues. But it was a painfully slow process, especially considering, like I said earlier, the beginning of this process, the kings of France owned pretty much just the area around Paris. In England, the institution of the Parliament, along with the Norman Conquest, allowed the process to move more rapidly. By giving the nobility some say in the decisions being made, they had some stake in the results of the projects being undertaken. But then, the smaller number of major lords in England, which was the result of the Norman Conquest, helped make this process of consultation practical in a way that was not the case in France. Or, you know, God forbid, Germany. Of course, as I said before, this process had been stalled by the Wars of the Roses, but it would resume, slowly, during what Churchill so charmingly called the Tudor tyranny. So, in Italy, administrative upgrades were caused by the centralization of power in urban centers. And in Spain, administrative changes were not really necessary for a long time due to their looting of the New World. France was able to centralize power as part of a centuries-long process of legal reform backed up by the army and a clever manipulation of the legal system, while in England, aristocratic participation allowed administrative reform through a process of consensus. What happened in places that didn't upgrade their administrations? Well, let us briefly look at what happened to Germany during the Thirty Years' War. Now, this story is insanely complicated, but to give you the one-paragraph version, this is what happened. A generation after Luther started the Protestant Reformation, the Holy Roman Empire merged with the Empire of Spain. Then they split up, but the empires were still allies. The new emperor in Germany wanted to crush the princes in his realm who were Protestant because he was super Catholic, but also, not coincidentally, he would thereby increase his own power over all the princes and reconsolidate his empire. Due to a pretext that you don't need to hear about, he set about raising a huge mercenary army in the Spanish style and pretty quickly crushed the only relatively smaller mercenary armies raised by the Protestant princes, which is to say they were still huge, just not as huge. But then every time it looked like the emperor was about to finish them off, the princes were able to use diplomacy to find some kind of external ally and keep themselves alive just a little bit longer. By the end of the war, the Holy Roman Empire and Spain were on one side, along with some of the Catholic princes and some of the Protestant princes, and against them were aligned most of the Protestant princes, along with the King of Sweden, the Catholic King of France, and unofficially, the Turks and the Pope. It's a wild story. You'll have to check it out sometime. The point, though, is that over the course of almost 30 years, all of these regional princes in Germany had been fielding these gigantic mercenary armies that they had been battering each other with. Then, washing over them were these even more massive mercenary armies from France, Denmark, Sweden, and Spain. Now, a war of this kind was always going to be bad, but Germany was just not as administratively sophisticated as its neighbors, and even its neighbors were laughably disorganized by modern standards. As a result, these huge armies were all packed together into this area, and no one was sending them, like, food or money. And so they stole whatever they could from the countryside. By the time the Treaty of Westphalia was signed, thus ending the war, as much as half the population of some areas had died from starvation and violence. The princes had had to keep their armies in the field and accept poorly supplied outside aid in order to survive the attacks from everyone else. But this act of just keeping their heads above water had just destroyed Germany. In short, administrative sophistication had become a matter of life and death for governments and citizens alike. What does all this have to do with the military revolution? So as I said at the start, the phrase was coined by historian Michael Roberts in the 1950s. Roberts was a historian of the Thirty Years' War, and his theory stated that the developments of the hugely expensive gunpowder armies of this era, in particular, forced governments to administratively advance, which he said was the key component of the development of modern states in the century or so after that conflict. So is this theory credible? There are a few major avenues of attack on this theory. First, was administrative centralization pivotal to the development of modern states? And does the timeline of administrative development work with Robert's theory? Second, is it credible that the development of a military technology, the musket or arquebus in this case, so totally changed European society as a whole? And do the timelines for those developments work out the way Robert said? In terms of administrative advancements, yes. I think most scholars are in wide agreement that the development of administratively sophisticated centralized states was broadly necessary for the development of the modern state system and modern European culture more generally. There are exceptions, mostly revolving around the Austro-Hungarian Empire, 
But broadly speaking, European political entities moved away from the political systems focused on individuals and their personal rights and relationships into systems based on institutions, laws, and abstract concepts of nationality. Whether you think that is a good thing, I leave to you, though I do think there is a case to be made that modern democracies would not be stable without the institutional trappings of a system based on law and order, which can only come from a central state. But it is fair to say that before the war, many countries, including England, still had administrations that were based on old feudal underpinnings. In the century or so after the war, almost all states upgraded their administrations and the militaries of Europe rapidly moved to a form we would recognize as belonging to, as I said earlier, the era of the American Revolution or the Napoleonic Wars. In the process, several of these countries turned those militaries outward and began dominating and colonizing less centralized states which is an unfortunate reality that we shouldn't lose sight of in this discussion. Podcast footnote. Though England did not actively participate in the Thirty Years' War, by the end of that conflict it was embroiled in its own civil war, which would bring a new model army and fiscal administration. Several units of the modern UK army trace their roots back to formations founded in the years just after the Civil War, some of which were originally organized along the lines of continental mercenary companies and were primarily loyal to individuals at least at first. End podcast footnote. The flip side of this whole thing is that administrations did not just pop into existence after the Thirty Years' War, and that's a big issue in general with Robert's theory, which I think we can see more if we talk about the other avenue of attack on on Robert's theory. That is, how much uh, broader social change can be attributed directly to something as arguably minor as the adoption of the arquebus. Theoretically, this is a key component of Robert's argument. I think it's clear from the narrative I presented that the changes that Roberts was talking about predated the musket by quite a long time, and this has led some military historians to attribute the changes to earlier inventions like the development of trace Italian fortifications or the French artillery train. For those convinced by such arguments, I just need to point out that gunpowder was not invented in Europe, and the development of European-style states did not necessarily follow the adoption of such weapon systems in China or the Middle East. But I think all of this is just kind of missing the point. It's almost an overly semantic discussion of Robert's point. Robert's real point, to me, is this bigger concept that the competition, the existential crisis of this period, is combined with the changing technology and the need for these more expensive armies, is what drove states to develop administrations faster than they would have otherwise. Broadly speaking, this concept is the one that mainstream historians have taken, albeit that they often don't address it in as much length or detail as I have today. Now, when I say mainstream historians, I'm specifically saying historians who are not military historians. Suffice it to say that I think that mainstream historians have been forced by the energy that military historians have devoted to this conversation to at least address the point. And in so doing, I think that they've put everything into a more realistic social history framework. If I can summarize that, it goes something like this. Given the story that I've recounted today in terms of the development of militaries and the development of administrations, it would not have happened the way I described without the advent of a series of new technologies. But they also could not have happened outside the context of a uniquely European society at their specific moment in time. The development of administrative techniques in Italy as a result of economic advancements is a key to this story, as is the somewhat comical factor of classical influence via the Italian Renaissance convincing amateur military leaders to try out a bunch of military tactics from the Iron Age a thousand years out of place in time. These ideas would not have been given the scope to be fully explored if they had remained cooped up in Italy, and the monarchies of Northern Europe would not have had a reason to experiment with Italian and domestic changes if they had not at various points been locked in existential power struggles, both internal and external. Which is to say, the French monarchy would not have begun to centralize its power if it wasn't in a running competition with the Angevins, along with the other ducal houses of France. England's developments were in many ways a quirk of its foundation by a bunch of mercenaries with a clean slate for political development, but that foundation was pushed into refinement and improvement by competition with other cultures in the British Isles and with the French. Competition with the French in Italy forced the Spanish to develop their own tactics, and ultimately the maelstrom of the Thirty Years' War drew in all the powers of Europe in a way that forced everyone to rethink and develop their administrations. The societies that developed had a unique capacity to project power that completely belied their geographic size and native resources, 
Many of them focused that power on each other, a few focused that power outside of Europe in a process that exported the joys of the Thirty Years' War globally. Hopefully someday our world will recover. But in the meantime, the processes that forced governments to become more professional, less corrupt, better at decision-making, more fair, and more inclusive created the space for those societies to work for more than just the handful of families that the king invited to his parliaments. And, eventually, as a result, forced them to exist for something other than killing each other. The key factor was probably competition, with a shared European culture, new technologies, and the rise of capitalism playing important supporting roles. The important thing about this observation is that it may help us create important guides towards how we might seek to govern ourselves and the international system we've inherited. Competition allowed European governments to create the conditions for things like the rule of law, and arguably democracy, in a way previous societies spectacularly failed to do. It also led to the deaths of millions and untold suffering amongst the survivors. If we can use these lessons to help governments and societies compete in ways that don't require killing people, that might make all of this worth it. Okay, everyone, thanks for listening. As a reminder, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, and my show is called Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. The goal of my show is to examine the early modern period of European history through the lens of the wars of religion, but I am a strong believer in giving plenty of context and background. I am such a strong believer that my show has been going for six years, and I am on my 71st episode, but I have not yet finished my extensive background section. That said, many of the themes in this episode will be important to the story I am telling, and even this quick, fun version is very complex. So if you like early modern history, or medieval history, or even if you just liked this episode, I think you might enjoy the show. And at the very least, I beg you to come over and give it a try. And with that said, bye for now, and tune in next time for a more David-heavy episode of the History of England. happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps to Detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.